But also, let me mention one thing. This is very important. The people sometimes forget about this. And it's really important to inoculate the silage when they do it. It really, it's really, really beneficial. Uh, if one thing they, they take from this podcast is please inoculate your silages. It will help in the reduction of that pH. Um, and it will also, it can also help, depends on what type it is. It can help in the, uh, life shelf of it or after you open the, the aerobic stability that is called, which is how much time you can have them exposed to air without this material going bad. Because if you put all the effort in the crop, if you put all the effort in the harvest, and then you forgot to add a few cents per, per pound, because almost nothing for the total cost of a good inoculant, and then you may lose 10, 20% of your dry matter. It makes no sense. It's a really cheap technology compared to the impact it has. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutrition program innovation. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the animal nutrition team at eastman.com. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show. I'm Adam Farinholz at North Carolina State University on behalf of Wise Genetics. Today, my guest is Frederico Posevich. Uh, Frederico, who goes by Fede, so that's what I'll be calling him as we as we go through, um, is coming to us as a PhD candidate from the uh, University of Florida, working uh, with some rumen nutrition work. Uh, he's actually coming to us for today's podcast recordings from Germany. So welcome, Fede. Thanks for joining us. Um, thank you, sir. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to participate in this uh, podcast. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad to contribute with it. Sure, absolutely. We're glad to have you. We, uh, we, we like to uh, give the opportunity. You'll be the... Oh, I'm trying. I have to go back and count fourth or so. I think um, maybe more of uh, some some of the kind of late stage graduate students that we've had coming, and that's always a fun conversation for uh, hopefully for our audience. It certainly is for me uh, as uh, we're talking to folks who are kind of in the midst of their research uh, and and sort of certainly passionate about the projects they're working on. For uh, for those that might not be familiar with the entire process, um, when I introduce Fede as a PhD candidate, that means that he's uh, gone through his preliminary exams and he's in the last year or so of his work there as he uh, finishes up some projects. And he's, as I mentioned, he's coming to us from Germany where he's doing some collaborative uh, work as well. So 
Um, before we get started, Betty, if you wouldn't mind, um, introduce yourself a little bit to the audience, uh, your background, uh, your kind of education, um, and then uh, how you got to where you're, what you're working on now, and then um, a bit of what you are currently working on as well would be great. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, listening today. I am originally from Argentina, from uh, the center of the country in a city called Ramirez, uh, in the state of Entre Rios, it's uh, very close to Uruguay. Uh, that's the way people easily uh, locate me. I did my uh, my bachelor's degree. At, I, I am a veterinarian. I studied at the University uh, Universidad del Litoral, is the name, in the state of Santa Fe, which is also in the center of the country. I, I come from a family which is uh, closely related to agriculture, and my my area, my city where I live, where I grew up, uh, is an important uh, agricultural area. So that's how I, I got connected to it. During my stay in the in veterinary school, I started uh, working on research, and I participated uh, also from an exchange where I was able to study in Brazil as well for six months at the University of Paspundo. And then finally, 2007, I came to Florida for an internship with uh, Dr. Nicolas Di Lorenzo in his ruminant nutrition team. And there I, I stood for to complete my master's uh, that I finished in 2020. And uh, right away, I started my PhD, always working with uh, ruminant nutrition, mainly uh, beef cattle uh, in different uh, different topics, but um, we cover some cow calves, some uh, backgrounding, also mainly backgrounding, I would say, is my, my work, but we are also a big team uh, and we very diverse areas. Um, so, yeah, that's a bit of my story. Right now, at this moment, I'm, I'm working on a collaborative uh, research with the University of Kiel in the north of Germany, very close to the Denmark border, uh, close to Hamburg as well, my location. And yeah, that's a bit uh, about myself and who I am. Excellent. Excellent. So we're going to, um, we're going to actually talk to uh, Fede over a couple of episodes here. And the, the first one uh, in, in this episode, we're going to primarily focus on some things related to um, silage. So, but before we get into that, uh, being that this is kind of the feed science, we, we talk a lot about the, the making of feed. So I'll ask you to explain a little bit to folks that might not be familiar um, how exactly we, uh, we make, um, and then we, we make silage and, and just the very basic side of it is when, then you um, will have you explain some of the, the interesting things you've been working on, but just from a standpoint, I'm interested um, because of your background, obviously coming from Argentina where there's a lot of uh, beef cattle raised, and then you've been doing work in the U S um, you mentioned Brazil in there and now you're in Germany. Uh, from a, a feeding and a management growing perspective, what is different on the beef cattle side from South America to the U.S., North America, and then in Europe? What are the similarities and, and what are the differences in how we actually feed beef cattle around those different areas you've been involved with? Well, uh, yeah, that's an excellent question. I think um, to understand the difference, I think we need to understand the the context and what sometimes uh, 
the kind of production is seen as less uh, intensive or less sophisticated, but it actually is driven by profit. Uh, I would say the main difference from South America to the U.S. is that in some countries, South America, you still have a greater proportion of animals, of, of cattle, uh, especially ruminants, fed on more uh, grazing situations. Even though feedlots, we, we have very sophisticated feedlots, we have um, big feedlots, maybe not as many as uh, very large feedlots, like the 100,000 cattle, we don't have many of those, but uh, we have uh, several smaller ones, maybe 1,000 to 5,000 head. But the, the biggest problem we have is that the, the price of, of cereals is an international price, right? But the price of, of uh, meat is not always the same. So a fat steer in, in Argentina depends what uh, on, on some regulations, but the price can be half or 30% or 25% of what is in the U.S., so the relationship on the on the price of meat that the producer sells or carcass, the price of the carcass to the price of the input in feed really uh, makes it more detrimental. Okay, in Brazil, for example, there are a, a lot of the of the livestock is still uh, fed on on just on grass, but it's because of this. It's not a high end product. It's, it's a cheap. Uh, meat in Argentina the same, uh, but there are countries that are buying that meat. Okay, we sell a lot of cow to China. They they just require acquire beef. Okay, uh, it's not going to be choice, but it, it can be a good uh, profitable uh, skin for some producers. Even though, as I mentioned, we, we also have a large uh, feedlot uh, industry where they produce very high-end quality of beef, we are actually exporting to U.S. and it's growing now. The, the meat from Argentina I see more and more in the U.S. coming. Um, but, yeah, we have the, the problem with the cost and the feed is affected by that. The, the feed that we use and how much, what proportion of the cattle. I, I think in the U.S. right now, how much beef is finished on grass, almost only the program, right? Only uh, animals are branded in a special program, but not regularly. That's one big difference. The other difference is uh, that because we don't have all the same um, transportation, it's it's not so common to hold, uh, to transport uh, by products distances as, for example, 300, 400, 500 miles. So products are more used locally in Argentina as compared to the U.S. We don't, you will not transport DDGs a thousand kilometers or yeah, 400 miles, for example. In Argentina, no, because of the price of transportation is much higher. Okay. So that would certainly change the market of, of what kind of ingredients can be, can be used in, in, in feed as well. So that, that certainly makes, that certainly makes a lot of sense is where here, you know, we, well, when when rail is running the way that it's supposed to be, and and when trucks are running and all that other kind of stuff, and we we have the enough drivers, we can we can move those byproducts as well as plenty of cereal grains and things around. For those um, 
we often don't think too much about things like um, uh, feedlot feeding uh, when we think about feed manufacturing in general. We're 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 often thinking either about um, the intensive uh, vertically integrated operations associated with swine or poultry, or we're thinking about commercial operations feeding smaller groups of animals or companion animals, equines, things like that. Because a lot of the um, manufacturing quote that goes along with feedlots, um, similar to as it is with dairy, is is somewhat more um, simplistic, at least from a flow standpoint. Um, you know, steam flaking some cereal grains, doing some mixing with total mixed rations (TMR), and then giving it to the cattle. Um, simple in flow, not simple to do, though. Um, and I was just going to mention all that. If anybody that's listening ever has the opportunity to go see a large cattle feedlot operation, it's something you should take advantage of. Um, it's a very interesting environment. Like you mentioned, if you go to one that's 100,000 head and you've got every combination of um, you know trucks going in and out with cattle and, and going in and out with food and there's still some old time way of doing things with pen riders on horseback, but then there's some very, very advanced ways of sorting cattle as you run them into um, sorting areas where they're being ultrasounded and, and um, using artificial intelligence to take pictures of them and then gates opening automatically to put them back in different pens and all that. So it's a, it's a really cool operation to see. So um, anybody that's never gotten the opportunity at, I would recommend it. So let's jump in to now um, some of the the major work that you've done related to one of the feeding streams for cattle, which is silage. So before we go into some of the work you've done, can you explain to the audience what the process is of creating silage and and why we do that for cattle? So yeah, um, regarding silage, for those that maybe have never heard or are not related to this, I would say um, an easy way to to compare to human feed is it's a preserved uh, feed and it, it's look, it could be related to a pickle feed. Uh, so basically what you do is you harvest a forage or a, a given feed wet so you don't reduce the, you don't want a the moisture to go, um, the, the sorry, the yes, the dry matter content to go above forty percent or below thirty percent. You want to be in this range, and you want this to ferment in a an aerobic uh, environment. And this can be done in different ways. Can be stored in a plastic bag, or it could be pressed and in a in a bunker. But the, your goal is to create an an aerobic uh, environment so the bacteria that will grow in this in this uh, media and and you many times you in, or most of the time you should add some specific bacteria that will help you they will produce organic acids that will reduce the pH and with that this reduction of the pH the feed can be preserved for long periods and it, it's done for different reasons one of them uh, the, the, the most important, I think, it's a better feed for animals. The animals are able to uh, obtain more energy and consume more um, more uh, pounds of feed as compared to hay, for example. If you do grass hay or grass silage, the, the silage, they should be able to consume more 
and also they will um, they will obtain uh, more nutrients. So that's one one reason why people do. The second reason I would say it happens in very wet climates. For example, you don't have a choice when the when the grass will not dry, right? Enough or will not dry uh, adequately. You will also uh, instead of doing hay regular hay, you may do a hay leach or a silage bag with uh, with grass or something like this because you you just can't. Uh, I would say the third reason some species like corn or sorghum is really not uh, it wouldn't be very practical to do hay uh, but it's really practical to to chop the whole plant and bag it or or store it in a bunker as silage and it ferments really well so it's really it's really adequate uh, those, those are really adequate forages to do to do silages for example okay excellent Again, my my guest today from the University of Florida PhD candidate Federico Podversich. Um, when so you mentioned we use we use hay um, or or grass rather um, grass for for silage, uh, especially when we can't hay it. Um, we also will use different uh, versions of like cereal grains. All right, so in the U.S. we we certainly ensile a lot of corn, um, harvesting corn um, long before we would harvest that corn if we were taking it for the the grain whether it be feed corn or whether it be sweet corn for humans we're we're harvesting it while it's still green um and then we also will occasionally use things like sorghum and do sorghum silage so i know that that's been some of the work that you've been been doing so what are some of the key differences when we're talking about those those cereal silages like a corn and a sorghum uh the the what are the differences in why we would use either one, how they impact cattle, what, what advantages they have from, from growing um, any of those kinds of, of different things that, that you guys have looked at. Okay. So I think as, a, as from a nutritive standpoint, these are different species. They will provide different nutrients. Um, I would say the decision to use one or the other May not not always be only dependent on the nutritive quality because if you if you want to use one hundred percent, if you put all your your decision, you base it only on the nutritive quality, you will always use corn silage and anything else, right? Uh, as a silage. The problem is if you are in a in an area which is get flooded or is really wet in South Florida, for example. It will be very hard to grow corn. It will be very hard to grow sorghum if it if it gets an inch of water standing for thirty days, right? But you can do, for example, uh, limpograss, which is in a variety the university is working on. It will grow really well in these very wet conditions, and you can harvest and do silage and, and have a or haylage or something similar. You can have this for your for cow calves mainly. Uh, or as the base of the diet, if you supplement for another category, maybe. Uh, so the, the conditions, the, the agronomic conditions will dictate which group of species or type of, of uh, forages you can use. When, when you get into the decision of one or the other, when you can, for example, if you can, you can do corn or you can do sorghum, all right. Then you you will look at another things, right? Um, 
form, as I mentioned, is the highest uh, has the highest nutritive value or the greater nutritive value. Sorghum is, is a bit lower. It's basically the the NDS is a bit more lignified and, and can um, and the grade is lower. And also the starch, so it, it should have, or normally it has less starch than, than corn, and the starch is, uh, the grade is lower. So, and also it has uh, some constraints in the processing of the of the kernel, the sorghum. So people will always prefer corn. However, the crop can be real. Two things in favor of, of sorghum is that the crop is more water resistant. And, and yeah, it's more tolerable than that. It's not that you can plant it and not and mistreat it. Okay, this is one thing I I always talk to people. And they ask me. I say it's a still a crop. You still should fertilize. You still should take care of insects and weeds. But under a very hot uh, weather or very or some dry moments of the year, it will it will do better than corn. Uh, Another thing is, it also depends what you want to use it for. Okay, it's not the same if you want to feed a high lactating dairy cow. In those cases, most people, mainly exclusively, will will choose corn. As if you want to uh, feed, uh, for example, backgrounding heifers. If you need to grow heifers, you, there's one thing that you don't want is they want you don't want them to overgrow. You don't want them to to grow three pounds a day because they will get fat and then and also this can hurt uh, this can hurt their uh, lactating capacity in the future. So for that, in those cases, for example, a sorghum, it can be more uh, more suitable. And even between species, there are different hybrids, right, and varieties. So I would suggest to people who's looking into using uh, silages to to find help from the universities. There are every university has their own extension agents and experts who can help you to choose your best, uh, but um, not only crop but also the variety that will fit your operation. And in the case of of specifically beef cattle, that is what we work. I think sorghum is, is in Argentina. We have a say that we say you are feeding the cows candies. Be, sorghum for a cow, uh, for a beef cow, is a candy. Even for a growing animal, okay, it's, it's more than what they need. They we've got very high intakes and very high rates of gain only with sorghum silage. A good sorghum silage, either forage or grain varieties. Uh, only with that and some protein correction, this is very important, okay? The silage is not, typically is not a f- complete diet. You need to supplement protein. And these are different ways of doing it. I, I can comment some ideas we, we've been working on and it really worked. Um, I would say normally what we do is we use, for example, potency meal or uh, we've been uh, also working with uh, Carinata meal, which is a new variety. Another student in my lab is working with this. You can use soybean meal. You can use uh, gluten, any any uh, high protein uh, source. 
Also, in some occasions, which is really nice and I've seen it working very well, people will let the animals graze a winter grass, for example, rye grass or oats or something, and this will be the source of protein, and then they supplement with sorghum or corn silage. And then you have a diet that is based okay, almost entirely in, in forages, plus uh, some minerals okay, that you will probably have to supplement. But this is, is really useful and you get very adequate rates of gain for growing animals. That will be the, the thing to consider, adequate. Because people say, oh no, my, my cattle only gain two pounds a day. Okay, but for a growing animal, this can be perfect. Sure. Excellent. Yeah. So we've got we've got grass type uh, silage and we've got corn type silage and and then as you talked quite a bit about there we've got sorghum based silage and sorghum having some some real advantages of of where it can be grown and what it can tolerate. I do like the point that you pointed out that we always talk about sorghum or people may call it Milo. Um, I think it's got a third name too. Um, in in the middle of Kansas, I, I always thought it was Milo until I moved away and then it became sorghum somewhere else. Um, we always talk about it being drought tolerant, but I think you made a really good point of, of no, it's drought tolerant. It's, it's not, we plant it. We never, we never pay any attention to it. So we've got all these different options um, and, and they have their different advantages depending on where we're using them. Um, for our last, um, our last few minutes here on, on this topic uh, for this episode, can you give us some idea of what's required on the silage side from a processing standpoint as it's harvested and as it's chopped and then the different you'd mentioned already um, we've got the large plastic ag bags so the the big long white tubes that we might see out in a field somewhere um, and then we've got bunkers that we pack it into and then cover to get that anaerobic um, environment in order to get the bacteria to start doing their work so what are some of the considerations that we have to think about from a processing standpoint and a, a storage and getting that fermentation to go? And then what are some of the areas that are being researched to, you know, improve that process and make it more efficient? All right. I will, I will go by, first I will cover the, the, the processing. And for that, you know, I want to say they're mainly, it's, it's mainly necessary for corn and, and sorghum, more for sorghum because the, the pericarp of the kernel is harder. And the bacteria, uh, either the bacteria in the fermentation uh, of the silage or in the rumen will not access the starch in the grain if the kernel, the pericarp is broken. Okay? You can, you can see very well when you feed sorghum, if it's whole grain, you can see uh, the grains in the, in the feces, in the manure. And I, and if someone doesn't believe me, there's plenty of work by, uh, for example, Dr. Fred Owens and several other people work who have demonstrated the benefits of processing. Regarding the, the kernel processor that is in the is inside of your the self-propelled harvester, there are a few things that you can adjust that will help increase that processing. So in, make the processing better to break this rain. The f- First and most important is the roll gap. So these processors, they work with two rolls, okay? That they could be different types, different type of teeth and different differential speed. But the the distance between one roll and the other for sorghum, there is some research that 
uh, especially from some years ago with uh, Dr. Luis Surareto and his team, they they demonstrate the benefits to going to one millimeter for Olga. Okay, this is important. One millimeter. The second um, thing I, I want to mention that helps is the length of the fiber. So the, the length of the chopping of the whole plant. Because the way this, this and you say how this affects if it's going to pass through the roll after. Well, the rolls are these rolls have a spring uh, that when very coarse material comes through, they will let the, you see, the rolls separate. To avoid this to happen more often, you should try to provide a, a shorter uh, pieces. So this, you, you can make it with a, with a reduced theoretical length of cut, that is called. We normally, at the university there, we work with 15 millimeters for sorghum, and we have had good results. But I think if you even go if you lower, it can help. But uh, here you are hurting your uh, physical effective fiber, right? So that you want some to stimulate chewing. So it will all depends what you want to use it for later or not. And you can also work on the speed differential of the two rolls. So the more, uh, the greater this difference, so the speed differential will be how fast one roll moves in compared to the other one. This could be 20%, it could be 60%. The greater that difference, the more shredded the material will be. So it will be like ripped apart. Okay? I don't know if this makes sense. And when you don't have a you don't have the opportunity to do a good processing, okay? Because this always happens. People can say, oh, I cannot process or I cannot uh, adjust this. No, I can only go to three millimeters. There are two things you can do to improve the utilization of the, the starch. First of all, harvest maybe in a lower stage. You might lose some dry matter accumulation and some starch if you harvest earlier but the pericarp will be softer. And the second thing you can do is storage for a long time because proteins within the, the silage, they will degradate over time, right? So over time, this storage will help in the utilization of, of, this, of the starch because the, the pericarp will degrade. It will not be perfect, but it will help. Okay. Yeah, and then, uh, sorry, this second question you made. On the the, the different technologies of, of actually doing the ensiling, so the the ag bags oh, yeah. versus the, the pits and and yeah. what the advantages are of each, disadvantage of each, how, how they work, and, and what we might you know see in the future as well. Okay, first, first about them, the different types of silage, and I would say... It's important to, to, to say that both are useful and both can work. I would say the definition, if you use one or the other, <laughs> you go talk to your contractor with the, the person who's doing the harvest for you, mm-hmm. what they can do. Yeah, sure, right? sure. Yeah. <laughs> and th- that's also the main limitation in all this. We, we talk about uh, processing methods, harvesting, but then you face that you only have one person in your area and this have this type of equipment and it works this way and that that's a problem. So first of all, make sure that the person can do it. I think, well, the, the bag has a cost, maybe an extra cost of the bag, 
but it's really good, it's really nice, and and works well. In some occasions, when when you have uh, in very large operations, it might not be possible because the number of bugs you would need to to store feed for, uh, for example, a one hundred thousand head a feedlot, they will always use a uh, concrete uh, banks. Uh, in that case, but for a small scale um, operations, I think the bug is really useful, uh, works well, and, and it really doesn't add too much cost to the final product. But also, let me mention one thing that's very important. The people sometimes forget about this, and it's really important to inoculate the silage when they do it. It really is really, really beneficial. Uh, if one thing they they take from this podcast is please inoculate your silages, it will help in the reduction of that pH, um, it, and it will also it can also help depends on what type it is. It can help in the uh, life shelf of it or after you open the the aerobic stability that is called, which is how much time you can have them exposed to air without this material going bad, because if you put all the effort in the crop. If you put all the effort in the harvest and then you forgot to add a few cents per per pound, because almost nothing for the total cost of a good inoculant, and then you may lose 10, 20% of your dry matter. It makes no sense. It's a really cheap technology compared to the impact it has. And they should always do it. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in there, we're talking about actually in, inoculating with yes. a, a prepared, uh, you know, cultured bacteria instead of just relying on what we hope is present in the environment, right? Yes, and and there there are companies working actively and universities studying for better inoculants, inoculants that will help you to degrade the the feed better, to reduce the pH, to control uh, the growth of undesired microorganisms. So it's a really, really useful technology and should always be uh, utilized. Excellent. Well, this has been a great conversation on um, kind of the, the cropping choice when it comes to silage and then the, the technologies that, that go along with it. I, I really appreciate uh, really appreciate you giving the listeners some um, information on that. And we even got into, you know, some conversations there on the processing. And when you talk about roll gap and things like that, those are things we talk about in the feed mill. Uh, but now we're just talking about it in a, in a harvester out in the field, but some of that same discussion we have on particle size reduction and how we manage, uh, how we manage the equipment. It's, it's like a, a roller mill and a feed mill, but it's mobile out in the field. So had some uh, nice crossover there. Uh, Frederico is going to join us again uh, for a future podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, additives that go in, into ruminant feed. So look forward to uh, having that conversation as well. So again, for today, uh, my guest has been Frederico Podrasic. Uh, he is a PhD candidate at the University of Florida in Room and Nutrition. Fede, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you very much. And it was my pleasure. Again, I'm Adam Farinholtz uh, coming to you from North Carolina State University. And this has been the Feed Science Podcast Show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>